Guarantees are perilous. Uh, governments are not very good at doing them, not very good at designing them, not very good at pricing them, not very good at of limiting the moral hazard risk that comes with them. As we saw in this crisis, when you make those mistakes, you can leave the taxpayers with huge, huge losses. In Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Today is Tuesday, March 29th. And that was Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner you heard at the top. He was testifying before the Senate Banking Committee earlier this month. Today on the show, we'll explore what has turned out to be the most costly bailout of the financial crisis, more expensive for taxpayers than AIG, GM, Citigroup, Bank of America, and Goldman Sachs combined. I'm talking about the bailout of the two mortgage giants, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. American taxpayers have so far put $130 billion into rescuing the companies. That number could rise to over $300 billion in the next couple of years. And this week, Jacob, is Fannie and Freddie Week here at Planet Money. Sorry. I get really fired up about mortgage finance. Exactly. They are two of the strangest companies in U.S. history. Today, we're going to be telling the fascinating story of their rise and fall. And on Friday, we're going to talk about what it means that we, the taxpayers, now own them and what we should do with them. To help us tell these stories, we've teamed up with journalists Bethany McLean and Joe Nocera. They are the authors of the book, All the Devils Are Here. Uh, But first... Alex, let me give you today's Planet Money Indicator. I'd love that. Today's Planet Money Indicator is 3.1%. Home prices fell 3.1% over the past year. That's according to the latest numbers, the January numbers from the Case-Shiller Home Price Index. Those came out this morning. And Jacob, we were talking about this earlier. It is still shocking to me that the housing bust has been going on for five years. Years now, five years. Right. I mean, they, so home prices peaked back in 2006. And this five-year number, it's, it's really striking. And it's a good reminder, I think, of just how much more complicated a housing boom and bust is than, say, a stock boom and bust, right? The stock market collapses. Everybody basically sells their stocks. Prices go down. Boom. Stock market bust over. Things kind of reset, right? But when you have a housing boom and bust, you wind up with millions of people living in houses they can't afford, often owing more than their home is worth. It's this really messy, ugly situation. And as we're finding out now, it takes a long time to fix itself, to resolve. You know, the foreclosure rate is still rising. And so here we are five years out. And it's really striking that, you know, For the most part, the economy really is getting better. Yes, the unemployment rate is still high, but the economy is adding jobs. Uh, Exports are rising. Consumer spending is up. Manufacturing is coming back. And there is still this one great big cloud hanging over the nation's economy. That is the housing market. A big cloud indeed. (laughs) (laughs) And actually sort of apropos of what we've been talking about today, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And Alex, I've been listening to you report this story for a long time. I'm very excited to hear it. And so we're going to do something we we occasionally do here on the podcast. I'm just going to turn it over to you. Alex, give it to me. All right. Thanks very much. Okay. So I'm going to start us off here with a statistic. 90% of mortgages made in the United States today are backed by the U.S. government. That's right. 90%. Nine out of 10 home buyers get their loans because of the U.S. government. The U.S. mortgage market, all $1.5 trillion of it, is effectively a state-run industry. And it became a state-run industry in 2008 when the government took over the mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And the story of how these mortgage giants became so large that they had to get taken over by the U.S. government is a fascinating tale that I'm going to be telling it today. And it starts back in the Great Depression. President Roosevelt was looking for a way to help poor people get houses. And so he started an agency 
that later got nicknamed Fannie Mae to make mortgages more available. For decades, Fannie Mae remained part of the budget. Until 1968, when President Lyndon Johnson was facing big deficits due to the Vietnam War. Here's journalist Joe Nocera. So Fannie was sort of spun off um, as a div- <laughs> almost like a corporate spinoff. And there really was nothing like it in American life. By privatizing Fannie Mae, Johnson had ushered into existence perhaps the strangest hybrid entity in the annals of American finance. It was an organization created by the government with an explicitly public mission, but that behaved exactly like a private corporation, with highly paid executives, profits going directly to private owners. Several years later, the government created a second nearly identical entity, Freddie Mac, to give Fannie Mae some competition. Karen Petru is an analyst who's studied Fannie and Freddie for decades, and she says this strange hybrid status gave Fannie and Freddie a very real advantage over other traditional companies because there was this belief about them. That even though Fannie and Freddie were private, shareholder-owned companies where the CEOs made millions and investors often made a lot of money, they were backed by the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. Sure, it wasn't official, but it was as good as gold. Gold indeed. Just as it's easier to get a loan if you have a rich relative cosign, the financial world assumed that since the U.S. government had given birth to Fannie and Freddie, in a crisis, it would act like the rich parent it was and bail them out. And so, because of this implicit government guarantee, as it came to be called, Fannie and Freddie had this huge advantage in the marketplace. And to understand why, it helps to understand what Fannie and Freddie actually do. Okay, so I'm going to explain it. I'm going to start with you. You want to buy a house. You go to the bank. The bank gives you a mortgage. But the bank doesn't hold on to your mortgage. It turns around and sells the mortgage to Fannie or Freddie. Fannie and Freddie bundle your mortgage up with a bunch of other mortgages like yours and sell that bundle, technical name, mortgage-backed security, to investors around the world. And this is the key. The reason those investors around the world want to buy these bundles of mortgages from Fannie and Freddie, Fannie and Freddie guarantee them. They say, even if you and the other homeowners stop making their payments, global investors will still get paid. Buy Fannie and Freddie. That is their guarantee. Now, obviously, if those global investors believe that the U.S. government is standing behind that guarantee, it becomes a lot more valuable. Starting in the 80s and continuing for the next two decades, Fannie and Freddie used this belief, this implicit guarantee, to grow into two of the largest and most successful companies in U.S. history. Here's Bethany McLean. Fannie and Freddie were always among the most profitable companies in the S&P 500, if not the most profitable, double or triple that of most banks. But even though the government guarantee had turned Fannie and Freddie into two of the largest and most powerful companies in U.S. history, everywhere you turned, people denied that the guarantee actually existed. For instance, at the top of every security that Fannie and Freddie issued, right there in big black letters, it said, this security is not backed by the U.S. government. High-powered government officials denied it, from George Bush's former Treasury Secretary John Snow to the powerful Democratic Congressman Barney Frank. Here he is in September 2003. There is no guarantee. There's no explicit guarantee. There's no implicit guarantee. There's no wink and nod guarantee. Invest in you on your own. Nobody who invests in them should come looking at me for a nickel, and uh, nor anybody else in the federal government. And adding to the chorus of denial, says journalist Joe Nocera, were Fannie and Freddie themselves. They would adamantly uh, lash back at anybody who argued that there was, in fact, a government subsidy. 
That's what they said in public, anyway. But to the people who mattered, the ones who were buying Fannie and Freddie securities, the company said something else entirely. Scott Simon was one of those buyers. He heads the mortgage department at PIMCO, the world's largest bond manager, and one of the biggest buyers of Fannie and Freddie securities. Fannie and Freddie, in you know, meetings with investors, whether it was us or anybody else, essentially just would sort of laugh at it and say, well, you, you know the government will stand behind us. They would literally say that to you as, as, as investors? I think they said that to most investors. You know, they would sort of wink and nod and just sort of say something along the lines of, well, you know the government can't let us go. They kept all the money they made, and they passed on the risk to the taxpayer in case of a, a downside event. Richard Baker was a congressman from Louisiana and a longtime critic of Fannie and Freddie. And he was especially concerned about a downside event because Fannie and Freddie were especially unprepared for one. In the language of finance, they didn't have enough capital. Capital is the money financial institutions use as a buffer in case of emergency. And Fannie and Freddie were allowed to hold less than half as much capital as regular banks. This made them riskier, but also more profitable. These low capital requirements, combined with the implicit government guarantee, amounted to a giant subsidy for Fannie and Freddie. And for years, Baker tried to get rid of the subsidy to make Fannie and Freddie hold more capital. And for years, Fannie and Freddie shot him down. Nothing before or ever since, in my judgment, has ever been as effective as their lobbying strategy, breadth, and width. Fannie and Freddie had the most formidable lobbying machines known to man. Again, analyst Karen Petru. That was an institutionalized facet of both of their corporate cultures. If you are a financial services industry lobbyist uh, available for duty in the 1990s and you were not either hired by Fannie or Freddie, I hate to say it now in historical retrospect, but you were really not uh, much of a player. And that again was Richard Baker. The Fannie Mae lobbying operation in particular was legendary, but occasionally congressmen would have enough courage to actually talk about it in public. We should have done better. We have once again left the public purse exposed to the risk of capital greed and corporate mismanagement. Like Jake Pickle, Democrat from Texas. Here he is in 1992. Pickle had worked to impose stricter capital requirements on Fannie and Freddie, which he called by their technical name, the GSEs. His efforts were defeated. I know the pressures that have been brought to bear on the members and the staff of the banking committee. I've watched strong voices in the administration turn silent. I deeply wish we could go further. But in the face of enormous pressure by the GSEs, I'm not at all sure that we can do, do better at this time. So the, today, I think the GSEs may celebrate some kind of a victory. Private fortunes will be or can be made by trading on the implicit federal guarantee these GSEs enjoy. But the struggle to hold them will come a later day. We used to call them privately Fortress Fannie Mae. Again, Karen Petru. As an analyst, she would often give expert testimony on Capitol Hill saying Fannie and Freddie didn't have enough capital. Fannie and Freddie didn't like that. Fortress Fannie Mae. It's partly because the corporate headquarters looked like that, but I think it was much more because they really were that. They had this everyone who doesn't agree with us is an enemy view. Now, this is the point in the story where usually you'd expect to hear denials from Fannie and Freddie saying, we weren't that bad, tales about our lobbying are exaggerated. Not so. Ladies and gentlemen... Here's Fannie Mae's chief lobbyist, who left the company in 2004, Bill Maloney. It was always an us, a very us against them. You know, that was just the Fannie Mae. We, we, 
you know, we, I, I joke with you, you know, if you punch my brother, I'll burn down your house. Uh, I want to kill them, bury them, and piss on their graves. Bill Maloney had many ways to kill them, bury them, and you know the rest. And a lot of these ways went beyond just plain lobbying dollars. For example, he banded together with realtors and home builders to form what people called the home ownership mafia. And he would remind Congress people every chance he got, oh, and by the way, a third to a half of the people in the country got their homes through us. And homeowners, they vote. Here's journalist Joe Nocera. Anytime there was a congressional hearing that was even slightly controversial surrounding Fannie Mae, you know, every congressman at that hearing would get a fanny pack, which was a list, a pretty fat list, of every mortgage in the person's district that had been guaranteed by Fannie Mae. So the congressman comes in, he sees the fanny pack. It's pretty darn hard to criticize Fannie Mae from your, from your seat. But the main reason Bill Maloney and his colleagues were so cutthroat, they believed what they were selling. They saw themselves as part and parcel of the American dream. Congress had set goals for Fannie and Freddie, saying that a third to a half of the loans they dealt with were supposed to go to low and moderate income people. So Bill Maloney argued, sure, we get special treatment, but that's because we are special. We help regular people achieve the American dream of home ownership. And many people I talked to within the companies spoke proudly of this affordability mission, believed it. People like Barry Zegas, a former Fannie Mae executive. When we did employee surveys at Fannie Mae during this period of time, which we did on a regular basis, like any big company does, um, it, was, it, it, it kept coming up again and again and again that the motivation for, for the employees in the organization was knowing they were working on something that was important to everyday people, that was about a mission, and that was making a difference in communities and in people's lives. And that was a very big part of the culture of the organization. That, says Bill Maloney, is what made the lobbying effort so successful. Literally to a person from cafeteria workers on up, we felt we were the most important thing in the nation with regard to helping low, moderate, middle-income families afford home ownership. This view that Fannie and Freddie were private companies serving a public mission also persuaded a lot of people in Congress. It seemed like a bargain. All Congress had to do was make it easier for Fannie and Freddie to do their thing, and then they would use their massive wealth to help regular people get homes. But this argument drove a certain group of economists and other critics crazy. They just didn't believe it. People like Dwight Jaffe, an economist at UC Berkeley, who spent his career studying the U.S. housing market, comparing it to housing markets in other countries where they have nothing like Fannie and Freddie. And he's come to a stark conclusion about the two companies. All of the money and all of the tax benefits and all of the Fannie and Freddie costs that we've poured into it have come to zero in terms of having any observable effect on our home ownership rates. Our rates are the same as, as countries that never put a penny of government resources into it. For Dwight Jaffe, it was clear. Fannie and Freddie were getting a huge subsidy. They didn't have to hold as much capital as other companies. They made more money that way. They had this implicit guarantee that also helped them make more money. But, he says, this subsidy... It didn't go to the people Fannie and Freddie said it went to, low- and middle-income home buyers. How could Fannie and Freddie have been so counterproductive to actually take a government subsidy and have no benefits? And the answer is the shareholders of Fannie and Freddie and the employees of Fannie and Freddie pocketed every penny of the subsidy. And they left the borrowers and the investors no better off than they would have been in a private market, except that when we had the bailouts, of course, now we're all poorer because of Fannie and Freddie. 
Breaking news, the markets are reacting to the big news on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as the government steps in. Let's get you through the numbers. In the uh, end, the implicit guarantee was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Fannie and Freddie had used the belief by the rest of the world that they were too big to fail, to become too big to fail. In the fall of 2008, Fannie and Freddie between them owned or guaranteed over $5 trillion worth of mortgages. They had a very, very tiny layer of capital, and homeowners were starting to default in record numbers. Defaults the companies would have to make good on. They were on the hook for literally trillions of dollars to foreign governments, huge pension funds, a good chunk of the world's banking system. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson said today the stakes were too big not to act. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are so large and so interwoven in our financial system that a failure of either of them would cause great turmoil here at home and around the globe. And so, just as decades of critics had predicted, and just as Fannie and Freddie themselves had secretly promised, the U.S. government came in and bailed them out. It is the largest ever takeover of a financial institution by the federal government in American history. But with home prices... One irony in all of this, Bill Maloney and the other Fannie and Freddie lobbyists had been too successful at their jobs. If they hadn't fought off congressional efforts to make Fannie and Freddie hold more capital, to make them safer but less profitable, the companies might have been able to withstand the turmoil in the housing market. They might not have needed a government bailout in the first place. The implicit guarantee is now explicit. The U.S. government, you, me, taxpayers everywhere, we now own Fannie and Freddie. And now that we own them, what do we do with them? We'll have more on that on Friday's podcast. Just as you leave and you turn around and take a cold shot. We have lots more on Fannie and Freddie on our blog, npr.org slash money. And Jacob, there's also a really great project that you're doing with our intern, Baldur. Yeah, that's right. So Baldur is from Iceland. And Iceland, as it turns out, is holding a vote. The people of Iceland are going to vote in a couple of weeks on whether they should pay back perhaps billions of dollars as a result of mistakes that bankers made a few years ago. Baldur is, is struggling with this decision of how to vote. And so we have a post up on the website where you can read about the issues and you can actually say how you would vote or how you think Baldur should vote on this. That's that's also at npr.org slash money. As always, we want to hear your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns. Planet Money at npr.org. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Thanks for listening.